0: Let's turn in our copies of God's words of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. If you don't have your copy, read along with me on the screen. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jason, and I don't want you all to underestimate Jason Crane, growing up in the South, steeped in King James' only version, how hard it was for him to read this passage like he did. So well done, Jason. (laughs) It's good to be up here. It's a privilege and honor, uh, but it's very daunting to come up here and speak about love. We're gonna have a, just a one-week interlude from our series on John. Pastor Nick will, and mercifully, be back next week uh, to to finish up the series. Uh, but you remember a few weeks ago, First John, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 21, Jesus talked about loving him, and today we're gonna talk about, think about the topic of love. And as I thought about this chapter, this topic, a lot recently. I can't help that my mind kept going back to one of the more influential books I've ever read. And I kept having the thoughts that Dr. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote this book called Loving the Way Jesus Loves. It's by Crossway. The same people put out the ESV Bible. I want to heartily recommend this book. There's no way in a few minutes I'm going to get through all of 1 Corinthians 13 in its fullness. It would be really good for you to dwell upon the love of God and the love we have for each other by reading this book. Put it on your summer reading list. If you're one of those who say, I don't read, it's a good time to start reading. Pick up this book and get it and read it, digest it, and it will help you understand God's word better. But I want to, before we pray and open up, read to you something that really resonated with me as I thought this week about this topic in the preface Dr. Ryken says that it's a Christian theologian or preacher's supreme privilege and responsibility to talk about love, and indeed, it's also a theologian and preacher's supreme humiliation. He says, presumably, o- presumably only a lover is able to b- write about love. Yet if there is one area of my life where I know I fall short of the character of Christ, it is having true love for God and my neighbor. Nevertheless, my sometimes loveless heart is compelled to testify to the truth of God's love and Jesus Christ. And that's what we hope to do this morning to testify to the love of Christ and to increase our love of Him. So, when we go to God and ask Him for help with this, precious God, we do thank you for loving us. We do thank you for giving us your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us today, help us, Lord, quiet our anxious hearts, still our racing minds, hone us in, focus us in, let us dwell richly and deeply upon you and your word this morning. We need your help, Lord, amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, This short passage is one of the most famous literary passages in the English language. Perhaps you know it. Perhaps you've heard of it but can't quite place it. It rings a bell. Or for those of you who are cultural Philistines like me, I'll save you the embarrassment. It's Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And if we were to go back 20 years ago and I heard any reference to Dickens or any other classic literature, piece of classic literature, I would have rolled my eyes, yawned, no interest, boring, esoteric. But now everything has changed. I yearn to read more of the classics I spurned so easily in high school and college, and especially Dickens. His prose and his turn of phrase is without match, and I look forward to having great margins, better margins in life, to reread Great Expectations. But why is that? Why the change? I mean, the book is the same as it always been. The book hasn't changed, but I have. <laughs> My value systems change. What I think is interesting and important has changed. What's intriguing. But I've also learned quite a bit about the world surrounding Dickens's famous book, the days leading up to the French Revolution. In other words, the context of Dickens' great novel makes sense to me now and change how I understand it. This once drab book is now enlivened. Well, I think there is a great parallel to this and how I think at least about 1 Corinthians 13. See, 1 Corinthians 13, if you've never even read the Bible before, you probably heard this all famous passage. And when it's spoken, love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, believe all things, you just know it, don't you? And similar to the Dickens novel, if if you were to ask me 20 years ago what I thought of 1 Corinthians 13 compared to now, well, everything has changed. 20 years ago, I would have associated 1 Corinthians 13, well, you know, with the wedding scene, right? The pomp, the circumstance, the flowers, the melodrama, the distant second cousin shuffling up to the podium because the bride's mom required her to be in the wedding, opening up the Bible and flowing from her lips this flowery and poetic passage while the bride and groom stare in each other's eyes. I would have associated this chapter with sentiment, romantic love, the ethereal and positive vibe you get on a wedding day, but now, everything has changed but unlike my change on dickens which happened subtly over time i remember the day it all changed for me about first corinthians 13 and in fact the day everything changed for me and how i read the entire bible i remember being at a conference and the speaker was talking about first corinthians and he came to chapter 13 and he said this you know no young lady in corinth would have ever asked paul to speak at her wedding especially on this chapter. In fact, Paul, I need to warn you, everyone's really upset at you for saying what you said here in this chapter. In fact, you probably wanna lay low and be out of sight for a while. How could that be? The same text that's always been taken so differently. The speaker at the conference went on and he says, when you actually read the Bible in context, you are hearing what God intends for you to hear you're getting a fuller, more substantive understanding of his word, but be warned, he said, it will change the way you approach the entire Bible and many passages like this one will be, will be much more confronting and challenging. And that's certainly what we need, don't we? We need to hear what God is really saying in his word and not some faint assumption of what is going on. And when it happens, it changes everything. Our view of God, our view of ourselves, and in this case, our view of love. So if I'm able to be so off on 1 Corinthians 13, perhaps I'm really off on the topic of 1 Corinthians 13, the topic of love. And so let's think about that this morning for a few moments. The first thing we want to notice about 1 Corinthians 13 Uh, 13 and verses 1 through 3 is that love is important. In case I need to say indeed love is important but before you write it off and say well I know that Marty let's just pause for a moment and remind ourselves just how important love is. It's at the very core of who God is. 1 John chapter 4 says God is love. It's also the very reason why you've been put on this earth and given life and breath and every day to exist. To love God with your whole heart, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now Paul assumes that the Corinthians know this. He assumes they even know what love is for he doesn't really define love in this chapter. He has a very specific goal here. Paul wants to startle them by pointing out just how important love is in their church. And if we were to read through the list of accomplishments and attributes in verses one through three without the negations, it would be a rather impressive list, wouldn't it? And if we had time to highlight the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, it would be clear that Paul isn't just naming random things going on. He was naming things that the Corinthians found most cherished, their most cherished gifts, especially in the case of verse one in tongue speaking, the things they thought were very demonstrable of their sincere spirituality and their commitment to the Lord. But not so fast, Paul says. These indeed are amazing things, ideals we should be striving for, great knowledge, mountain-moving faith, sacrificial giving, and even to the pinnacle of what all Christians hope they'd be willing to, be, to do, to die for Christ, to be a martyr. But, Paul says, if you don't do them with the motivation of love, none of these things, nor you as the person doing them, are worth anything. This would have been a stinging rebuke for the Corinthians. <laughs> Paul, you mean, If I speak in heavenly tongues, if I have great knowledge, if I have powerful faith, if I'm extremely generous and I'm delivered up for Christ, none of it matters to the Lord? Yes, Paul says, if you have not love. See, the spiritual life of an individual or an entire congregation is measured not by gifts or productive activity, not by the size of your congregation or its local impact, not by its commitment to sound doctrine, its experience of God in Sunday morning corporate worship, or not even by great expository preaching. All these things are worthless if done without love. Now note, Paul isn't deprecating the gifts as such, but he's not lifting it up and saying on their own, they're worth anything. Love makes all the difference. These gifts were given, these things were exercised, or should be, for the purpose of building up one another. And if that's not the intention they're used for, they're a waste of time. Phil Riken says, no matter what God has given, and no matter what we have done for God, it means nothing without love. God may have indeed given you a huge heart to be hospitable, wisdom to be an influential leader, Lots of means and willingness to be sacrificing and giving to the poor. And yet, shockingly, it's possible to use our gifts for ministry without having love in our hearts for anyone except for ourselves. He says we are so foolish and selfish that it's even possible for us to do something that looks like it is for someone else when it's really for us to enhance our own reputation and feed our satisfaction with ourselves. Tim Keller tells of a story that I've told many times, but it's too good and appropriate not to say here. He read it in a uh, Spurgeon sermon. The setting is in uh, medieval England. We're in the courtroom. The king is there, the king's court, and a local peasant is granted just a minute in front of the king. And he comes into the room and the peasant kneels down on one knee and lifts up to him and says, Sire, I give you my very best turnip. I worked hard. It's the greatest, best turnip I've ever grown. And today I present it to you. It is yours. And the king is touched and takes the turnip and looks to the peasant and says, You know, I've got some farmland right around your, your house. Take it, use it, you get all the spoils from whatever you grow in it, it's all yours. Well, also in the courtroom was a nobleman and watching this, his jaw dropped. If he got all that for a turnip, I wonder what? The next day, the same scene is there but the nobleman this time is in front of the king and the nobleman brings in his horse. And he goes up to the king and says, Sire, I present to you my very best horse. It's the best workhorse I have. It's the most valuable asset that I own, and I give it to you this day. The king stands up and takes the horse by its bit and starts to walk away. And again, the nobleman's jaw drops. Perceiving this, the king says to him and turns around and says, See, sir. The peasant gave me the turnip, you just gave yourself the horse. Jonathan Edwards says, whatever is done, yet if the heart is withheld from God, there is nothing really given to him or to anyone else. Love changes everything, it's that important. All right, I think I hear Paul here, I can easily understand that I can deceive myself and assigning value to something if I'm not motivated by love, thinking that it's good when it's not. It's just selfishness. The difference is love, verses one through three point out. But I'm still left with this question, what is love? I don't really know what it is according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as I said earlier, the chapter doesn't define love, but rather shows what love does. But it is worth knowing this Greek word behind love, and it's probably a word you heard of called agape love, agape. And in the Bible, it has a very particular but straightforward meaning. In the Bible, agape love is the intentional giving of something or yourself for the benefit of another, irrespective of their merit and your own personal benefit. And that's important to know as we move on to this passage because remember, these particular verses Together we're serving as a strong corrective to move the Corinthians back towards that kind of love. And so Paul uses categories here, he names things that were specific problems in the Corinthian church. And that's why verses four through seven are mostly stated in the negative, to show them just how sinful and self-centered their love really is. See, selfish motivation even with the best actions attached is the antithesis of love and the antithesis of how people are to treat one another in a church in life. And Paul wants them to know that the gathered congregation, the church, their church is the place among all other places where authentic love is to be demonstrated and seen very clearly. But this is precisely the point where these very gifted Corinthians failed. They exercised their gifts. They use their money. They use their doctrinal discernment for their own egos and and their own good, not for the good of one another. So what does love do? Well, compared to the activities in verses one through three, the way of love in verses four, five, six, and seven is meek, is unassuming, even unnoticed. But make make no mistake, while this is the most excellent way, it's certainly not the easy way. Look at the list with me. Verse four. Love is patient and kind. Now, we have a kind of a hallmark sentimentality when we hear those words, don't we? But these two words represent the very core and the heart of the character of God himself. These words were used in the Greek Old Testament to to talk about Psalm 103. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When anyone who knew the God of Israel would have heard the words patient and kind, they knew no person could live up to this. Only God himself could be described as patient and kind. So a call from Paul here is a very high calling. It's calling us to be just like God. And then Paul goes into the list of negatives in verses 4, 5, and 6. And as one commentator pointed it well, he says, this is by no means a random catalog of things, but very pointed in terms of the unsavory behavior of the Corinthians, which has emerged already in the letter. So everything you read in these verses has actually come up topically in the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so when they heard chapter 13, they no doubt would have heard this. What I am calling you, Paul says, to love is everything you aren't. So love does not envy. Their church is full of factions and jealousy. Love does not boast. So they were boasting in all sorts of things, boasting in which leader they were following, boasting in how much they knew, how gifted they were, but they're boasting only served themselves, not building anyone up. And so they were very profoundly arrogant, puffed up by their knowledge and putting others down and causing them to stumble with this knowledge. And thus they were rude to one another. You've heard the statement maybe you can tell a gentleman not by the way he addresses his king but how he interacts with his servants. And that's what was going on in chapter 11 when the lowly and meek amongst them, the ones who had not much, they would come in and have the Lord's supper together but they would cast them out to the side. Love does not insist on its own way but these very gifted people insisted that, hey, I've been gifted to do it my way. Love is not irritable. It's not easily agitated. Love is not resentful, or you may have heard it this way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And lastly, in verse 6, rejoice not in the truth, but they rejoiced in the wrongdoing. And this is particularly important for us to pause at this moment and take notice the Corinthians were known for boasting in their, in their immorality. And Paul had a strong rebuke for them for that. And it makes it clear for us today that we cannot call love anything hap- in any context, in any relationship that is wrong. I hear pastors have stories of someone coming in and saying, Pastor, I want to leave my spouse and run away with the person I'm really in love with. or in the context of a family member who wants to be affirmed in an open, active living in a homosexual, transgender lifestyle. Love cannot affirm that way of living. Love can do a thousand other things to endure and bear with that family member, but love cannot affirm wrong. You can call all those things what you want, You can call them wanting to be liked. You can call them vainglory, you can call them self-service, but please don't call those things love. No, love rejoices in nothing other than the truth. And now back to the positive, verse seven. Love bears all things and believes all things. John Calvin said it so well. Love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart Then injure a brother by suspicion. It is always ready to think the best, to put the most favorable construction on anything. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. No hardship can ever stop love from loving. This is why ultimately it will triumph. Love never fails. And then love endures all things. One author says it this way, because of sin, there are always things in others to bear, to believe, to hope, and to endure. Other people's behavior always tests our patience, our trust, and our hope, just as our behavior tests theirs and God's. Clearly, love requires decision-making and effort. It is not at all just a feeling or emotion. Indeed, love is a profound test of Of character. What love does, listed in verses 4 through 7, is the antithesis of verses 1 through 3. Those things are public, wow-worthy, glory-gathering actions. Love instead, quietly but steadfastly, does everything in verse 7, endures, bears, hopes, while avoiding everything in verses five and six. Love is an amazing combination. And it should make us stop and be in wonder and awe of the God who is perfect in love. Well, we've seen the importance of love what, what difference it makes, it's the inflection point by which the judgment of all our actions hinge. We've seen the demonstration of love. Love expresses itself as an intentional effort to be other person-centered while simultaneously honoring to God in truth. Now reading back from chapter 12, verse 31, notice that Paul wants to demonstrate a still more excellent way. So he doesn't just describe a list of characteristics about love, he actually personifies love. Did you catch that? Verses one through three, the I, I, I. And then in verses four through seven, love, he actually personifies it as if love is a person. And so by doing so, he makes this passage very much stylistic, poetic and why it's used at so many weddings. But he does so, he personifies this idea of love to achieve something much more important, a piercing application to us as persons. See if you go back to chapter, or go back to verses one through three and make the I there you, and then substitute the things that you call your Christian accomplishments, see how it goes. If I preach a sermon that helps hundreds of people love God more, but I have no love in doing so myself, it's a waste of breath. If I give 50% of my money to church and Christian causes, but have not love, it is as, it is as if I've never given anything. If I attend all church activities and volunteer every chance I can get, but have not love in each and every one of those moments, I am of no service to the Lord. If I wear my mask, but do not do so with love, I'm doing nothing. So you have to ask yourself, are you like the nobleman in the turnip story? When you give, you know, are you doing it fully for the Lord and the other? Or do you want something back? This is why we have to think and echo from Matthew chapter 6, that great passage about someone who gives and prays and fasts. And Matthew says, do so in secret so that no one knows, maybe even not even yourself if possible, so that you safeguard against doing things for the wrong reasons. Now, of course, of course, how easy it would be for and our sinful justification at this point to say, well then, (laughs) if I can't do things 100% for the love of others and the love of God, I won't even try. But that's kind of like taking your ball and going home, isn't it? That's not how Christians respond. Of course, on the flip side, the more self-confident among us still might need to be sobered by Paul's stinging poem here. So let's keep going on. Drop down to verses 4 through 7 and substitute your name in all those sentences. Marty is patient. Marty is kind. I don't normally speak about myself in the third person, but just to make the point. Marty does not envy. He never boasts. Marty is not arrogant or rude. Marty does not insist on his own way or is he irritable or resentful. Marty does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but always rejoices in truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Even if you only know me casually, you sit there and snicker, condemned thoroughly. How about you? When people tell me that they love 1 Corinthians 13, I know they've never read the passage. It's an awful chapter, isn't it? Because it holds up the mirror all too clearly to show us how far short we are of love. And it would be a mistake to read 1 Corinthians in an encouraging feel-good tone and think happy thoughts of love Instead, this is a terrifying passage because it sets a standard of love I know I could never ever meet. But we can't end with this. Paul holds up the mirror to the Corinthians and to us this morning so that we're brought low and humbled, but thank God that's not the end. So let's keep personifying this passage to give us hope. Let's go back now and substitute yet another name in this passage, the name of Jesus. When Jesus spoke in the tongues of men and of angels, he always did so in love so we can know the Lord. When Jesus gave all he had, even to the point of death, he did so to his great shame, but for our great rescue, he did so for no other reason than for love. Jesus is kind, he is patient, he is, is the exact imprint of the character of God. Jesus never envied or boasted. He never insisted on his own way, but always did the will of the Father and gave that obedience to us. Despite so much misunderstanding and failings, even by those closest to him, Jesus never was irritable or resentful. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus always loved, but never never enabled or endorsed wrongdoing. Jesus always spoke, promoted, and took great joy in the truth. Jesus bears all things, even us. Jesus believes all things, even in us. Jesus hopes, all things and endures all things, even for us. Phil Reichen says this Jesus is everything I am not. But this realization does not crush me, it liberates me. Because the love of Jesus is so big that he loves even me. And because he loves me, he promised to save me, to forgive me and to change me, we are nothing without love. But when we know Jesus, who does nothing without love, he will help us love the way he loves. First Corinthians 13 indeed holds up a mirror and we need to look hard at ourselves and we need to know that we need repentance and cleansing. But thankfully, that's not the only place we are able to look. Once we're humbled in a lowly state and only when we're in that state can we start to inch towards this high calling, this excellent way Paul has for us to love one another. Just listen to 1 John chapter 4 and think about God's love and your love. If we love one another, God's abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When I look to Jesus and the cross, not only do I find forgiveness, but I also find the motivation to love and the meaning of love. Jesus is the personification of everything I need. Friends, my understanding of 1 Corinthians has changed. And my hope that my understanding of biblical love is changing. But the question is, have I changed? For that's really what matters. I need to love. I need to love God. I need to love others. And it's only as I'm forgiven by Christ, cleansed by Christ, motivated by Christ, and modeled by Christ, will I make any progress at all? If you've learned nothing today, but the fact this, keep your eyes on Christ, then you've learned everything. Or as Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that in a refreshed, reinvigorated way, Lord, we know how desperately we need him today. Thank you for stirring us, reminding us, convicting us, and we pray that you will change us. We are thankful that Jesus is unlike any of us, we are thankful that he is patient and kind. We, in th- we are thankful, Lord, that you through him endure even us. Thank you for loving us, O oh Lord God, and help us to love one another. Amen.